0: We're working with a data set at the moment from a charity that supports men experiencing family breakdown. Um, And between 40 and 45% of the men who approach that service are engaged in active suicide ideation when they approach. Um, You know, that is a a huge issue. Um, Now it's it's very difficult to conduct research on suicide and the the reasons for that and getting the records is, is something that's not that easy, but I would be willing to bet that this type of issue family breakdown relationship acrimony is almost certainly going to be one of the reasons why suicide is the leading cause of death for men aged 45 to 55 and why 75% of completed suicides are men.
1: Hi I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we are excited to welcome Professor Ben Hine to Locked Up Living. Ben is Professor of Applied Psychology at the University of West London. His PhD was focused on the gender stereotyping of pro-social behaviour but since joining the University of West London in 2014 he specialised in subjects that fall within the remit of forensic psychology. He's particularly focused on rape myths and how these prevent the progression of rape cases to prosecution as well as hidden victims of domestic violence. He leads the evidence-based domestic abuse research network He's currently working with a research grant from the Woodward Charitable Trust, exploring father's experience of family separation and breakdown. So today we've invited Ben on to discuss his work on parental alienation, and you can read more about this in the forthcoming book, the short title of which is uh, Domestic Violence Against Men and Boys. Hi Ben, and welcome today.
0: Hi, right, thank you for having me on.
1: Hi, Ben. Really glad to have you on. I I think um hearing your presentation at the recent Male Psychology Conference in Preston um in June, and I think it's fair to say that many of us were reduced to tears by the um by the really th- powerful story that you had to tell so really pleased that you're able to join us to talk about the concept of parental alienation today but before before we get to that perhaps you could tell us something about your career pathway how did you come to be an expert in gendered forensic issues
0: yeah happy to um although i i always feel very uncomfortable with that word expert uh, i always put it in inverted commas but uh yeah i um uh, you know, as your introduction said, I, I joined your UWL um, over eight years ago, um, and yeah, came from a, a much more developmentally focused background and looking at kind of more social psychology, social behaviour, um, and it was actually through kind of meeting and working with forensic colleagues at UWL that I began to think about the application of gender and gender theory to criminal justice settings, and you know. Uh, it, it's it was always hard when you look back to think about where these things emerged from, but I guess it was kind of quite organic and meeting then kind of key partners in this work, going to conference, for example. So, you know, meeting uh, people like Liz Bates um, and, Je- and Jenny Mackay and, and Nicola Graham-Cavan and kind of just thinking about how we can really emphasise this relationship between gender psychology and our, and our theories of gender development and criminal justice settings and how it plays out. And uh, I just want to return the compliment to say that, that Naomi's uh, keynote was, was also excellent at the male psychology conference and learning about, you know, those kind of manifestations of stereotypes, for example, within the prison probation services is equally uh, uh, fascinating to me. So that's kind of where I've ended up where I am.
1: Thank you. I didn't pay you for that Ben, either. <laughs> so your your latest publication in press is an autoethnographic analysis relation relating to parental alienation. For any listeners who've not come across this term, could you just say a little bit about what parental alienation is?
0: Yeah. Um, so parental alienation um, refers to a, a kind of psychological condition in which a child has or or is allying themselves very strongly to a parent um, which we might term the preferred parent or the alienating parent um, and rejects a relationship with the alienated or targeted parent without legitimate justification Um, and there is a lot of discussion um, around what uh, you know legitimate would constitute Um, and when we talk about legitimate versus illegitimate I think we're talking about Um, For example, if a child rejects a relationship with a parent because that parent is abusive, that would be seen as a legitimate justification for not wanting a relationship. Um, Whereas if there is no seeming behaviour on the part of the parent that would justify a kind of total rejection, that's when we start to think, okay, have behaviours been employed here to, to kind of facilitate that rejection? Um, and that's why we delineate it very clearly from parental estrangement, which is where there is the lack of relationship due to those more kind of legitimate reasons, for example, absence or abuse.
1: I think your, um, your definition kind of hints at what some of the controversy, controversy about the concept might be about. But I wondered if you could say a bit more about that, because it is pretty controversial, isn't it?
0: It, it is um and that's for, for myriad uh, reasons um and I, I mean i'm always very open and, and candid about that controversy and um, i wouldn't want to kind of shy away from that because i, I believe that's part of healthy academic uh, debate I, I don't really believe there are any areas of scientific inquiry that are without controversy in some sense in in the same sense that i don't believe anything is definitively proven um as it were so um one of the reasons why this area is uh, so tricky is, well, I mean, there are, <laughs> it's really hard to kind of pinpoint one thing. I think it's because you're involving um, and trying to assess the, the feelings and behaviours of children, which first and foremost, as a developmental psychologist, is, nev- is never easy. Um, it's never easy to kind of quote unquote truly understand what a child is feeling, what they're thinking and where behaviours may have come from. Um, so, for example, in a, in a court context, there's a lot of focus and emphasis at the moment on listening to the children, believing the children, whereas actually there is a very healthy body of research that suggests that, for example, we can implant false memories in children. So um, dealing with the testimony of children is one of the tricky elements. Um, parental alienation as a research area has had a somewhat checkered history. Some of the researchers involved themselves have very personal checkered histories, um, and uh, you know the definition I have just given—that's um, the definition I use, but it's not necessarily the definition that everybody uses. So there is some debate, robust debate, around what we actually define parental alienation as. Um, there's also some people who use the term parental alienation which is very outcome focused. So uh, you know, I spoke there about the alignment itself, whereas there are uh, behaviors that can get to that outcome, which are PABs or parentally alienating behaviors, which other people are talking about. Um, and then there is estrangement. And then there is the syndrome, which is not something I specifically subscribe to, but there is a body of work that suggests that there's a clinical element. So um, it's not an easy area. And it's also not easy to talk about because um, it's uh, it has profound kind of impact. So it's not easy to kind of uh, uh, look into, as I probably demonstrated whilst delivering my talk. Um, And it's also controversial, my final point, because we don't really understand its relationship to intimate partner violence at the moment. You know, is it a form of intimate partner violence is it simply an avenue for intimate partner violence is it something that's separate and deserves a separate label so we're kind of working that out as well and so all of this transpires in court cases and family court settings which um, is is really kind of the battleground for trying to establish what this phenomenon is how impactful it is and what we can do about it Um, but yeah it's by no means easy at
2: all
1: you. though, that was a really comprehensive overview of, I think, some of the issues that are around in relation to to the concept. Now, you chose to uh, utilise a methodology, auto-ethnographic analysis um, for this. And that's not a methodology that you see all that often within psychology, although I, I guess in some other fields, maybe like anthropology, it might become, it might be something that's more commonly used. Can you tell us something about methodology and why it was so fitting for this area of study?
0: yeah absolutely I mean that um that approach uh kind of grew quite organically um when uh I started this work um with uh, and and the body of work that I talk about in the chapter and and in my talk is is conducted with with Liz Bates um and it grew from a, a research project that she originated and I joined um slightly later down the process and um you know, when when we were doing our analysis of the data, it was very kind of uh, you know uh, pure qualitative with with structure around it, the Braun and Clark six stages, blah blah. blah. And what I was finding when I was doing the analysis myself is it, it, it was incredibly difficult because it started to chime with some of my own experiences, the experiences I know that my own father went through, um, and I was finding myself. Delayed for months, you know. I had to apologize to Liz several times to say I'm not meeting this deadline. I just I can't look at the data again. I'm finding it too distressing, too upsetting, and um, I just have to say I think anybody reading it would feel the same. But if you've been through it yourself, I think it's it's even uh, more kind of salient emotionally. Um, and I started to put together. Liz asked me to write the, the chapter for the book, and I started to put together what you might call a kind of standard literature review. Um, and it was Liz who mentioned, she said, you know, look, we've had conversations. I mean, we had data analysis meetings where I was, you know, very emotional talking about the data. You know, she said, look, this is clearly something that's really close to your heart. And she said, I've been reading about this method, autoethnography, and I think you should take a look. And I kind of ran with it from there. And I was really captured by this idea of, um, you know, blending more kind of artistic, emotive methods with the kind of traditional scientific method, because I think it's very important and all very well and good to have a robust, objective scientific approach. But sometimes that can come across as quite sterile and removed, And I think when we, I've certainly had this where I've been writing and you can feel yourself drifting away from the phenomenon, becoming quite removed, feeling quite distant from it. Um, And that comes across in the writing sometimes. And actually one of the beauty, beautiful things of autoethnography um, is that it kind of re-injects that real lived experience within there, within the narrative. Um, So that's what kind of attracted it to me. and, And also there is quite a bit of writing on how autoethnography ethnography itself can be therapeutic. So I figured maybe I could kill two birds with one stone and, and, and generate some healing or something from it. Um, and uh, that is to to part extent what happened.
1: Well, thanks for, sh- for sharing that, Ben. I think that um, actually that, um, that making use of your, personal experience in a way that uh, human beings love stories don't they as we as we know and I think you're right in terms of people present their research in a way where sometimes the story can feel a little bit lost yeah and actually if we want people to learn and to understand something it's far easier to do that if they can really engage with the story in a very emotive way
0: and I think particularly in this area um, you know, I, we, I was presenting this and just, I mean, just to be clear, alienating behaviours um, occur towards both mothers and, and fathers. It's, it's, in my opinion, not a gendered issue in that sense. Um, but, uh, you know, I was talking at the male psychology conference. I was talking about fathers. And I think sometimes we can, and we talked about this a lot at conference, we can be quite quick and easy to dismiss the emotions and the needs and the trauma of men and I think for me this was one of the ways to get people to connect with that a little bit more and to really put themselves in in the shoes of uh, people going through this Um, and hopefully what that does is it kind of again forces or, or prompts that engagement with the subject matter to a greater extent than here is just what we know and you know going from there.
1: Thank you. And are you able to say a little bit about your story, for just for context for listeners?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So I mean, I you know, I I was I'm giving this presentation and written this book chapter from the perspective of a, a child in the situation when when I was growing up of a, of a, a couple that broke down, um, and you know the subsequent um, you know processes that. Uh, you know, occurred because of that and the behaviours that were prompted because of that, there was quite a lot of acrimony in, in the breakdown of my parents' um, relationship. Um, you know, my, uh, my, when I was, when I was uh, about nine months old, you know, my mother began showing symptoms of what turned out to be multiple sclerosis that put a lot of strain on the relationship. Um, and through the kind of intervention of my maternal grandparents as well, and a lot of pressure from them, the relationship kind of slowly broke down. But to the point of which, you know, my father left for work one day when I was four years old and came back. And I had gone. My mother had gone. All the furniture had gone um, with a note saying, you know, this is over. Um, you know, we want child support and, you know, we, we, you know, we, we don't want anything to do with you, um, which led to kind of four year process to outside of court to within of um, trying to negotiate parental responsibility. Um, And, uh, you know, as a child growing up in that process and having um, and being witness to these kind of alienating behaviors, you know, that were perpetrated from my mum's side of the family about my father um, was, yeah, it was really long lasting and really kind of traumatic. And I've spent a lot of time and energy kind of trying to work through some of those issues. And interestingly, it wasn't just about the, the four-year actual court process. There was decades of repercussions after that because of what had occurred. Um, and I, I, I can give some more specific examples later. But it was generally this this feeling that, you know, my because of a kind of perceived injustice on the on the side of my mum's family and my mum, you know, they sought to kind of attack the relationship between me and my dad and that was a kind of way of damaging my dad and even though everybody said you know we, we're trying to do this with Ben's best interests at heart um you know as a kid you do notice things you hear things you pick up on things and uh, you know it led to it did lead to a tremendous amount of damage within my and my father's um, relationship so it, I'm, I'm definitely coming from a perspective of the child but also I have worked with my father as well um, over the past uh, kind of 12 months to really explore and understand both as a researcher but also a son um, his experience at the time and um, you know what the effect on him was as well um, and it turns out we were both kind of profoundly uh, affected so that's what we've been kind of working through together, and that's now the, the product, of, the, this chapter and, and talk is now the product of that process.
1: Thanks very much for sharing that, Ben.
2: Thanks, thanks Ben. That was um, a very powerful uh, uh, explanation of the context of this uh, work that you've been doing. I was, I was just wondering, given what you were saying earlier on about the controversial area that mm. this has become because what you've been describing is intensely personal and very powerfully so um and yet one can see how such work can get caught up with the social process and then of course the political mm. uh, process as well how do you manage that kind of turbulent uh area of of, of your work um
0: that's a really good question and actually it's something that I've been asked about lots of different areas of my of my work and, and where they kind of uh, approaching because a lot of it has you know challenged some of the dominant narratives within the area particularly within into a partner violence for example um my approach is simply to be led by the evidence um, that I have in front of me um and to try as much as possible to um, you know, walk the line between engaging in a kind of really meaningful, um, engaged level of inquiry, so, you know, listening to maybe unheard and unseen voices um, and, and giving them maybe more attention than they would have previously received. Um, but also being willing to kind of court lots of different perspectives because, There's no point. I I don't believe there's any point going into any kind of debate or or battle without an open mind um, to look at other people's kind of perspectives. You know, one of the key controversies around this area is that parental alienation is used erroneously within family courts. And I've never stood up and said that doesn't happen. Um, I stood up and said, yes, that may very well happen, but there are two sides to this. There's lots of men are saying X and lots of men saying Y, blah, blah. blah." Um, And I don't necessarily feel that some of my, um, you know, counterparts in this area that I debate take that approach. But that's that's how I've always tried to, to kind of manage things um, and just just being calm and open and, and talking about these things as, as rationally as possible, which can sometimes be hard because when you do have personal experience of the phenomenon and you have people saying that phenomenon doesn't exist, um, it can be quite challenging because, you you know, someone's kind of quite openly and readily invalidating your experience to you. Um, but, uh, you know, my My kind of motivation for for keeping with this line of of research is um, my personal, also on behalf of my father, but with the project I'm working on at the moment, it's on behalf of the thousands and thousands of parents, but predominantly fathers that I have worked with um, that are fundamentally ruined by this kind of phenomenon and i think you know someone has got to give them a voice and uh and so uh i'll let that be me for now
2: thank you um well you've given us some idea already of the uh, scope of the uh the problem we've talked about thousands and thousands can you be a bit more specific about that
0: how wide Yeah, well, I would like to be. Um, One of the issues, and it's something that I'm working on uh, currently, is that we don't actually have any reliable UK data around the topic. Um, But there is reliable data from the US, um, which suggests that kind of anywhere, say, between 17 and 34 percent of parents have experienced alienating behaviours perpetrated towards them, which equates to millions and millions of American parents um, and certainly from the research that I've been doing with the Woodward Charitable Trust that you mentioned, um, out of the fathers that have responded to our survey um, to talk about family breakdown, the vast and overwhelming majority of them have spoken about subsequent alienation and use of family courts. So I think if, for men, and those that's the population I'm working with currently, um, it is a widespread problem and issue um which men are potentially particularly vulnerable to because of their position as fathers um and and a lot of other things that come with the kind of male gender role and notions of masculinity um but uh you know even without that robust uk evidence i'd be willing to to take a good a good guess that it's affecting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of parents following relationship breakdown. And I think one of the main things that we are looking to kind of maybe do over the next few years is to recognize the scale of what we believe to be a kind of endemic public health issue. Um, But as I said, I'm evidence led, so I'm trying to get the evidence together first and then we can make that pitch.
2: Yeah, that's a very good way of pushing it as a, a public health issue, really, because you're talking about a very large Number of people in great distress and suffering long-term harm. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: Um, so that that's quite overwhelming, really. Mm. Uh, what about the difference between men and 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 women? Are, are this is there a balance there? Or? Well again, the the more robust
0: prevalence data that's come out of the US suggests that there isn't any difference in prevalence. Um, A lot of people, one of the reasons that, again, the debate is somewhat toxified in areas is that people think it's a a men's rights issue. Um, I don't see it that way. Um, I believe it's, you know, a relationship issue, a parents issue. The prevalence data that comes out of the US, again, like I said, suggests that um, mothers and fathers are equally likely to have had perhaps uh, perpetrated towards them um and uh you know I will come back to uh, when we hopefully complete a UK study I think when it, it you know when gender does come into the frame is how it's then perceived in terms of seriousness severity how it's described and also how people uh, how mothers and fathers can um you know, seek kind of recourse for it within this justice system. Um, And again, with that, I would just say, yes, there are differences. But the main kind of common factor is that nobody seems to be winning in any way when they go into the family court system. Um, And so, you know, yes, there are pockets of research. So, for example, Crook's uh, 2015 paper that, you know, does suggest, yes, there are slight differences in maybe the way alienation is perpetrated by men and women and how it's perceived. I think the thread, however, through all of the research is that whether you're a mother or a father, the effects are profound on the alienated parent and also the child involved. And I think that would be my focus more than the kind of uh, smaller kind of differences, though important. I think, you know, what we've really got to do is orient ourselves to alienation as an issue and recognise it as an issue and recognise the profound impact it can have. Um, because, you know, anybody can experience and perpetrate abusive behaviour, and that is essentially what alienation is.
2: Thank you. And what you're talking about, really, is bringing back lots of memories for me from work that I've done with couples or with half of a couple and the extraordinary mm-hmm. uh, extraordinary um, behaviour that sometimes came into play and the distress mm-hmm. of that that caused. Can you give us some sort of description really of the sort of behaviors that would fall within the description of parental alienation
0: yeah absolutely um, and and again this is where i think it's going to be over the next few years slightly more useful to delineate the term alienation parental alienation as the outcome so that is the alignment that forms from PABS or parental alienating behaviors because i think You can have someone in a situation where uh, the behaviours are being perpetrated, but alienation itself hasn't yet been achieved. Um, And, uh, you know, you can have situations where you've got both or one or the other. So um, I think it's a really good question. And actually, um, this is one of the, again, areas where it is tricky. It is tricky to um, delineate, Okay, what's an alienating behaviour versus just... You kind of couple discord because one of the so baker and darnell provide probably the most uh, comprehensive list of kind of core 11 categories of behaviors and these are things like um, bad mouthing limiting or interfering contact um you know interfering with information so stopping a school report going home for example emotional manipulation forming an unhealthy alliance and other miscellaneous things like telling the targeted parent the child doesn't love them um and I think you know again one of the things we're moving towards is a more robust explanation of when that crosses a line and the the um the equivalent I would kind of talk about is uh, where we have clinical thresholds so you know you might have a behavior but then does it cross a clinical threshold that it's affecting your day-to-day life for example um, and I would say it's the similar thing for this because you could have Uh, example and and the weakest one that I always focus on is bad mouthing because I think it's quite easy (laughs) to sometimes bad mouth your partner Um, and I'm sure you know 90% or 99% of of couples could probably uh, note a time when they have bad mouthed their partner potentially in front of their child I think what you're then looking for is when does that cross a threshold into an alienating behavior where you are mouthing them in a specific way that is trying to disrupt the relationship and break the bond and i'm not saying that's an easy line that's clearly a gray area but that's the kind of thing that maybe we're, we're talking about and then some are more obvious you know limiting contact breaking a, a contact order um you know emotional manipulation saying to the child you know you you, you know you're, you're you're this the parent doesn't love you and they want to hurt you that's clearly then an alienating behavior rather than something flippantly you might say like oh you know daddy's so silly or something like that you know so um yeah there are lots of different ways it, it can be perpetrated
2: for sure thank you so that's some of the um yeah actions from from, from the position of the, the parents what sort of um impact does this all have on on the children Well, I mean, and this is one of the areas where I talk
0: about it from not only the the literature, but also my own, you know, experiences. Um, We are starting to reach a critical mass of of evidence around this issue that it has a deeply profound effect on children, this process. Um, And because of my roots in developmental psychology um, and, you know, looking at things like theories of attachment, it's not necessarily surprising to me. And I think this is what always kind of shocks me around people's potential unwillingness to take this more seriously um, is because, you know, human infants as compared to other mammal infants are, you know, pretty uh, shockingly ill-equipped to uh, navigate their way in the world. Um, There's lots of anthropological history as to why that is, but basically they need a lot of care. And the, the main goal that infants have when they uh, come into existence, and they come into the world is, is to be kept safe. And there are lots of ethological, biological, evolutionary methods that they do to ensure that, which then turn into a cognitive process of trying to build up a mental picture of who is going to look after you. And I'm going somewhere with this so we start to build up this idea and this is why for example and any parents listening to this will remember this time when you know you have separation anxiety where a child will scream when you leave the room and all they're doing is they're testing their understanding of the world if i scream will they come back well they have, okay they have good now imagine for example and uh, there are lots of different family setups um lots of different family units but imagine for example a, a kind of uh, what we might call quote-unquote traditional family setup where you have a mother and a father now if the child has been taught that both of those people keep them safe i.e they have formed an attachment to both of those individuals and you then remove one of those individuals either in an abrupt or an alarming way that will cause significant and I'm, I'm trying to find the right word to kind of you know, really kind of hammer home the the, prof- the profound nature of what that can do in terms of destabilising someone's understanding of the world. You know, attachment is so important. Figuring out who's going to keep us safe is, is basically our main childhood drive. And so if you remove a parent, it's the same as if you, for example, suffered a death, if one of those attachment figures was to die. You're, you're destabilising, sorry, everything that that child knows about their existence and their position and that 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 has profound consequences for personality for developmental psychopathology for neurosis for for all different things not least because where we are um, born early as it were early in development we don't have a kind of fully functioning fully matured brain as many other uh, mammal infants do it can also change our neurochemistry and our neuroanatomy and there is a growing body of literature that suggests if you have parental conflict, parental discord, divorce, etc., cetera, and acrimonious proceedings, it can actually shape our neural pathways and the way that we approach problem solving, the way that we approach social relationships. So really, I believe there isn't a way to adequately express enough just how much of an impact that it can have on children. And from my own personal experience, I would say that that very much uh, bears true. Um, in terms of my feel there has been many different facets of my personality, my approach, my behaviours that have been shaped by that time in my life when I witnessed the discord, the acrimony that, you know, decades later, still affect the way that I kind of go about things and the way I attach to people. So profound, profound. Thank you
2: very much. And that's, that's wonderful. Of course, actually, extremely the, uh, descriptive. These sound like situations where, you know, in the end, there's likely to be no real winner. What do you know much about the outcomes for the uh, parent who's who's doing the alienating? Um,
0: for the parents, for the parents who are doing the alienating, I think the, the problem is is that a lot of the time um you know the unhealthy alliance that is generated through the behaviors will feed and reinforce what is often trauma-driven responses from that parent themselves so you know for example a lot of the time this will generate from potentially an insecure attachment on on the part of the parent with with their parents um and the kind of the, the triggering of that and the subsequent behaviours and then the alliance um, is often, you know, a feeder to those issues. So we, I, I you know, and I think it's really difficult to say this and, and I have a lot of um, followers, you know, and, and people that I've spoken to who um, will be too affected by this issue to agree with me and I understand that. But we also can't forget about the alienating parents within this because in a similar way and in a similar approach that I have to those who perpetrate other forms of violence often this comes from a place of extreme trauma themselves um I I, you know it may seem That way to some, although I have had many men who have said, No, I know exactly where this comes from, and I can see exactly the line of of trauma where this has originated from. Some people will, however, feel this has just come out of the blue. And actually, what often seems out of the blue, if they were, for example, provided therapeutic intervention and they got to sit down with someone and unpick it, I'm sure there would be an easy trail of breadcrumbs to, to follow. And I've had those types of journeys myself in in therapy where I sit down and I go I have no idea why this is happening and I get probed a little bit and then I go oh no I know exactly why this is happening now um so I think it's important not to forget about alienating parents within this debate because I think they then suffer because they are put they they kind of construct an echo chamber for themselves where they're not going to get any better they're not going to stop perpetrating these behaviors um and often leads them very damaged Um, And on the other side, for the alienated parent, um, again, it's profound. It's profound mental health, largely mental health um, issues, suicide ideation, and a very unfortunately healthy level of completed suicide. Um, We're working with a data set at the moment from a charity that supports men experiencing family breakdown. Um, and between 40 and 45% of the men who approach that service are engaged in active suicide ideation when they approach. Um, you know, that is a, that is a huge issue. Um, now it's, it's very difficult to conduct research on suicide and the, and the reasons for that and getting the records is, is something that's not that easy, but I would be willing to bet that this type of issue, family breakdown, relationship acrimony, is almost certainly gonna be one of the reasons why suicide is the leading cause of death for men aged 45 to 55, and why 75% of completed suicides are men. And the testimony that we have been gathering and the men that I speak to, I mean, I had a case just at the weekend where I was following a father on, on Twitter, um, you know, who, who drifted into this, this space um, and, and because he hasn't seen his children in, in years. Um, so uh, yeah, again, it, it it affects everybody in a in a really profound way.
1: Well, those um those statistics are the sh- shocking, although not not surprising, are they? But um, it was interesting also to hear you reflect on the position of the parent who's doing the alienating, because in a way it reminds it as as you say, kind of like drawing on other kinds mm. of um perpetration of of um violence um, to control and what have you that quite often a person themselves doesn't want to perpetrate acts of harm or destruction and yet somehow can feel like they can't stop themselves okay. so it doesn't feel in the in keeping with the integrity of of the human being that's mm-hmm. that's committing those those acts but I was also wondering about the long-term outcome because it's very easy to control a young child but I guess at the point that somebody becomes an adult, they're able to, um, yeah. find out, you know, what the, what the reality of the situation is. And certainly I, you know, at least one individual who is an adult, um, chose to then align herself with the, with the, with the father who she'd been prevented from developing a relationship with over so many years and was extremely angry with, with yeah. her mum as a consequence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, this is one of the reasons why my defining message to, to alienated parents is, is as hard as it is. Don't don't ever give up. Um, there's ne- it's never too late. Um, you know, my relationship with my father, um, although, you know, to, to many on the surface of it, uh, it seemed like a success for us because uh, he, he won his case and I went to live with him. Um, you know, our relationship was deeply affected for, for many, many, many years. Um, And it's only now, you know, 20 uh, years um, after the the conclusion of that court case that we've started to truly work through those issues. And I've realised a lot of things that were maybe incorrect or had been warped by the alienating parties, Um, you know, and I'm sure he's uh, glad that he's just faithfully stuck, 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 stuck. And now he's got to the point where we're ready to kind of talk about that. Um, you know, and there are stories where children come back because they want to know more or they realise themselves. They, they, as they grow older, they start to think, hold on a second, you know, they start to see through the abusive behaviours. Um, but that being said, I would have to say largely that's that's the rarity. There are um, plenty of situations where um, children are lost to the fathers or, or, or the parent. Um, I, I speak mainly with fathers, um, you know, forever. And, and they have no idea where their children are, where their children or child is, um, what they're doing, and, and their perception of them, um, you know, has walked forever. Um, and that's, I just think that's heartbreaking. Um, and I, you know, I talk, when, when I'm talking about this in the context of, a, of abuse um, and the alienation is an avenue for abuse, I mean, I see that very easily because I say readily, you know, if someone wanted to harm me and cause me distress, if someone was, you know, planning this and thinking, how can I, how can I uh, hurt this person? It would be through my children. So if you have someone who is abusive and is looking for an avenue to perpetrate that abuse, um, you, you know, and to lash out, that seems like an obvious route to me to to go down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is reconciliation and I always say so never give up because you never know and, and children do grow their own minds but it depends on the severity of the situation and and plenty of times that won't sadly be the case.
1: Yeah, it's so awful really awful all round. And into a lot of our listeners are people who um who practice as therapists. What are the therapeutic requirements for successful treatment do you think? I mean I imagine that for the child there could be issues around identity possibly shame around complicity as well as more obvious possibilities of trust and abandonment do it do you have any sense of some of the issues that might be helpful if somebody was working with somebody in the situation of some of the issues that might be important to focus on
0: yeah I, I mean absolutely I, I would just state um, I always like to be very upfront and very clear so I'm not a trained uh, clinical psychologist and um, in terms of my command of the literature it is less so on the actual therapeutic interventions for example that are mandated by family courts but what i can speak to is the therapeutic intervention that i have had um, for these issues um, and extrapolate that to, to the best of my knowledge um, and the one one thing one thing that's interesting i think is around you know how alienation progresses and Jennifer Harmon in the US, um, who's a fantastic researcher, and she's kind of single handedly trying to construct the literature base around this, this area, the the kind of more empirical literature base around this area. Um, And she has spoken around how children feel when they are kind of triangulated within a relationship and when parents start to utilise Children. and I'm uh, having worked at this area I'm always very careful to never do that um, with with my children I actually think a lot of people don't realize how confusing that is for for a child even on the lowest level um, you know when you're talking about very low level uh, um, uh, secret keeping for example and things like that it's extremely stressful for the child because when they form attachments to multiple figures they are loyal to them they are Uh, you know they they are aware that that person keeps them safe so they feel attached and loyal to them so if you have those two parties warring against each other it can be incredibly confusing for the child Um, so that's why I never say oh you know don't tell mummy about this or it's our little secret you know Um, no matter how much trouble it might get you in as a spouse you have to suck it up uh, because you don't want to confuse your child Um, so when the way that that then translates to behavior and therefore therapeutic intervention is um a lot of the time you'll see uh, a, 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 an external locus of control so an outsourcing of locus of control um where you feel that you're not really in control of what what you're uh, the decisions you make because you've got the kind of two parties that you might be you might move around a lot or um, there might be you know uh, and, and again, a lot of this is about the communication that comes with that. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have children living in two places. Nothing wrong with that. It's around communication, developing a healthy routine around that. Um, but uh, also outsourcing self-esteem. So wanting to please people um, and, uh, you know, not having a solid sense of self because you're not kind of given that safe space to develop that. Um, and yeah, abandonment. Um, is a huge issue, this feeling that... Because if you have your attachment systems destabilised, what you're learning is essentially a blueprint for unreliability. And this is what attachment is all around. So, you know, when you are crying and that person comes, you're trying to build up this idea, okay, I can rely on this person. If one of those people seemingly vanishes or you're actively told that person is out to harm you, even though they seemingly weren't before, it's easy to understand how children can then become incredibly confused. And that then has implications for romantic relationships, social relationships, not being able to trust, not being able to engage. Um, and when these children get even older and become adults, it can then have issues in terms of their own parenting, forming attachments with their children in, in, in insecure ways. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm not an expert on, on the therapeutic side, but from my own um yeah from my own experiences self-esteem locus of control uh you know attachment identity and abandonment i mean you know pretty fundamental psychological concepts so you know therapy can never hurt i don't think
1: yeah thank you that's 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 very helpful
2: a field of research that's extremely uncomfortable for everybody uh, Mm -hmm. uh concerned and and uh you've you've told us in extremely powerful and poignant terms just what this has uh, meant uh, for you as well how have you coped and how have you kept yourself nourished um over, over this whole period of the research um for a while i i
0: didn't um i wasn't being a diligent researcher um and i you know i slapped myself on the wrist for that and i was uh you know, for a number of months, I was probably violating my own ethics proposal, which said I will engage in self-care. Um, but I, I don't think I had realised how, how profound it would be in terms of, uh, you know, reconnecting me with some of those experiences. Um, so, you know, I have no shame in admitting that I, I've been in therapy for the last six years on and off. Um, that always provided a very useful and safe space to talk through some of those experiences. And, you know, the, I, I have been in a dynamic relationship with the work because, you know, I have wanted to identify, explore, highlight the experiences of others. But also those experiences have unlocked things within me that I've been aware that I've then needed to tackle. Um and, you know, I have a great motivation for that because I'm extraordinarily lucky to have two beautiful children of my own. And, uh, you know, they are a very good motivator for keeping myself level and sane. Um, you know, I, I'm on antidepressants uh, as well. So, you know, managing it medically, um, but also then trying to enact, you know, what I said I was going to enact within uh, my uh, ethics proposal. So, you know, regular exercise, as much as possible with with two young children um and uh making sure that i have an outlet i don't just store all of the stories within me um you know my wife is excellent at listening you know at the end of the day if i've been reading testimony you know talking to her about how it's affected me um making sure that i have you know breaks from social media as well um you know twitter is is a fantastic tool i disseminate a lot of my research on twitter but i have a lot of men uh, and and mothers who who follow me and are talking about their experiences so it can become overly saturating um as well um and in a toxic area debate that this can become sometimes that can really wear you down if all you're seeing is the different warring sides so trying to take regular breaks um from from that as well but you know, I, I always think the most interesting questions are often the hardest. Um, and that's a, a burden that we carry as, as researchers. And I, I feel incredibly honoured and privileged when I'm reading some of these accounts, as distressing as they are, you know, I, I treat them with great care. Um, and I try and, you know, use them and curate them in a way that will help those stories kind of reach where they need to go. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly not, easy especially with my own attachment to the topic but um, I think I've hopefully figured out a few ways to to relieve the the pressure as it were.
2: I was just going to say Ben I think that's a really great uh, answer and beautifully put and and I love that phrase you use of being in a dynamic relationship with the uh, work and that comes across extremely clearly too. Sorry Naomi.
1: Yeah I was just I was just wondering Ben as well it kind of it seems to me listening to you that one of the things that might have strengthened your your resilience and your ability to cope with this is that the fact that you are very open uh, you know that you're courageous enough to be open so it sounded like if if I understood you correctly in terms of how you got started with this was being open with a research colleague Liz Bates Mm -hmm. um, so that she was able to also say well have you considered this this methodology and I think there are times when people are researching or studying areas which actually do have quite a lot of resonance for them but they mm. they try and keep that secret and I think maybe your openness is as whilst it might have made things a bit shaky for you for a period mm. maybe it's allowed you to have some sense of mastery over that so that you can grow from it rather than have it as something that's always waiting there as a, as a bit of a landmine to step on.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, again, it's a really important fine line to tread because we, you know, in social sciences and, and other areas, you know, we, we would never want to lose sight of being evidence-based and having evidence-based foundations for your hypotheses and things like that. Um, however, I, I kind of agree, and I think that we're maybe, the pendulum has swung very far to one side that we're almost scared to connect with the data that we are privy to and the stories that we are told um and you know it's for me it's about how that then factors into scientific communication because for me there's no point in me listening to these stories and connecting with them if i can't then transfer those stories to to engage the public and policymakers and and things like that so you know i mean I'm a very open person, generally, I'm, I'm quite an open book. And, uh, you know, I, I'm exactly the type of person that, you know, if you got with me and gave me a few drinks, you'd have my life story within a couple of minutes anyway. Um, and I think that helps. But yeah, I, I think in terms of research, I don't think it's, I don't think that it's damaging to take these approaches. And I think it can be enriching as long as it's done correctly and I I did a, a tremendous amount of research around autoethnography and how to do it and what those lines were and what it can mean and all those kind of things and you know from the reception that I've had so far it does seem like it has helped prompt engagement with the topic and gets people thinking about a very serious issue but I would always be very keen to make sure that I'd never drift into a position of ideological approach rather than evidence-based it's still evidence-based I still have studies to support my own accounts but I think sometimes when you have someone stood in front of you um, or survivors stood in front of you saying yeah and actually this reflects my experience of it it can just provide that conduit to to real connection and that's what I would I would want to try and do as much as possible.
1: And I think that offers hope to people as well. So I think too often difficult experiences are seen. You know, we. Uh, I think there can be a tendency to see people with lived experience as being other than other people who are functioning and doing, performing. Mm. You know, valuable roles. And I think if we're able to see that you can have lived experience of something that's that's actually harmful, but you're able to engage with that, and you're a, you're a whole human being. Uh, serving a, a useful performing a useful yeah. role that, that offers hope to people rather than leaving people feel they won't they can't recover and if they can't recover you know there's something wrong with wrong with them
0: and it, and it, it you know and it feels like that for many people and I have felt like that before I have felt you know I've, I've had many Many times in, in therapy and when I've been speaking with people, where I say, Do you know what? I I am I'm broken. There's nothing I can do about this. I, I cannot piece myself back together. Um, but you know, I've luckily been surrounded by people, you know, people like my wife and my children and my family who, who have said, you know, you know, it is worth it. And I'm not at the end of that journey by any means. And like I said, I'm in this dynamic. Relationship. I I I still I read accounts every day when I'm working through the data that that floor me and uh, and really, you know, hit very hard. But um, I think, you know, again, I'm motivated by the benefit that it could potentially have. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit of selfishness in there that it does help me as well, and it you know it helps me understand a little bit more about myself. So, uh, yeah, I I think we should not be afraid of those types of relationships with data as long as we are informed and we have a framework and of course as I've described don't do what I do and make sure you practice self-care from the very beginning.
1: Oh, I feel very privileged to have been able to get you on to have this conversation Then, thanks very much.
0: No thank you for having me and uh, you know it's it's again things like this that will help you know spread, spread the awareness of the issue and um, yeah we can hopefully kind of just make small steps towards trying to uh, uncover what we can kind of do about it and and help children and parents alike. And, you know, one of the main things for, for me is, like I said before, reframing. So we need to bring this away. I believe we need to bring this fundamentally away from a justice issue and bring it towards a public health issue. Because, you know, actually, if we had more community intervention and if we viewed it in that way, we could probably stop the vast majority of couples getting to court in the first instance. But I think actually we've got to position where a lot of people say, Oh, well, we've broken up. We've got to go to court to decide, you know, what's best for the children. Whereas I was on another podcast the other day that said, and there was a family court lawyer that said, there's no, there's no necessity for that. If you can sit down with your diaries and work out what's best, then then do that. You know, it's, I think it's about having that support in place to, to deal with acrimony and, and break down itself. But um Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Great to meet you, Ben. Thanks very much indeed for coming.